Howdy friends and neighbors and welcome to the third new studio in three videos. Actually this is really part of the same studio as the last one but it's in the back half of it. Uh, started to say long story and not tell you but hell you got time right? Uh, ever since the coronavirus, I don't know if you've heard about that or not, uh, Dunstruck, uh, we've, we've gone to online teaching at my university and so this is precisely where I sit when I give my online lectures. The green screen behind you uh, is actually experimental. I've never tried that before. Uh, I'm hoping to maybe play around with it a little bit after I do this video. But be before, what I had up there was a, a big whiteboard. I'm sure most people have a huge whiteboard at their house. Well, me too. Uh, and so I use this to try to give my lessons to my poor students who are trapped in, in such horrific places as, as Oklahoma. And uh, gosh, I don't know, I think I'm from California, something like that. It, it, they're not in Texas is all I know. So. That's why we moved again. Uh, and the next thing I was going to tell you was that I, I didn't have time on this one to set up my teleprompter. I mean, I've got all my words right here. Of course, as you can see, I'm making these up. As I said, of course, I made these up, too, if you think about it. And uh, I, I just, uh, with all the time I've spent getting all them classes together, plus today is the little lady's birthday, so... Uh, We've got a few things planned, all obviously just around the house because we ain't allowed to leave. Turns out there's no water at the store, but there's plenty of beer and wine. Now, if only Jesus, oh no, that's the other way around. I guess Jesus could reverse engineer water from wine. I've never asked that question. Twelve years of Catholic school, that never came up. Now, what I wanted to talk to you about today was, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, here's this here global catastrophe coming on us uh, called the coronavirus, which I thought I might have. Over the weekend, I was sick. That's the other reason why I didn't spend a whole lot of time getting the, the teleprompter set up, is that uh, I've been kind of wore out. Uh, but it turned out it was just allergies. Uh, I was in bed pretty much all day on Saturday, uh, but by Sunday I was feeling better, uh, and, and uh, that's when we had our fantasy baseball draft in anticipation of a season that may take place in a few years. Now, uh, I think with this global catastrophe that we're having right now, I think we need to, 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 to ponder more than ever on who's going to take over once the Twitter-in-chief is gone out of the White House. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, I support so-and-so because, man, uh, he or she's better than Trump. Are you kidding me? Why, if we got a, uh, a phone book out and we opened to a random page and had a, a blind person point, we're 99% sure to find somebody better than Trump. I believe we can set our sights just a tad higher than that. And I think what we need to do is to elect someone whose economic policies will actually allow us to achieve the social goals most Democrats share. Not that I'm a Democrat, of course, but uh, presumably this is what they share. And I've been trying to explain this to, to folks for, for literally for decades, how important that choice is in terms of economic policy. Now, I think that the penny has dropped for some folks, but quite honestly, not for many. I, I've, I've spoken to local Democratic groups many times, and, and everybody smiles and claps, and they say, yeah, them Republicans is bad. Uh, but they don't seem to be able to make the logical leap to the fact that the economic core from which Republicans and your establishment Democrats draw is the same core. Here's the deal. They both draw their economic advisors and advice from a school of thought called neoclassicism. This has been true of every single chair 
of the uh, Council of Economic Advisors since at least 1961, which is as far back as I bothered to look. Every single one was from this same school of thought. Now, there's a whole lot to say about this, obviously. I, I got me a book on different schools of thought in economics. Uh, if, if you're, I mean, not that I'm trying to sell it or anything. I'm not a very good capitalist, as it turns out. I, I tend to just give things away. But um, anyway, I'm going to narrow this down to just three points I want to make about this school of thought that actually requires a very long time to explain, as with any school of thought. First of all, this school of thought largely assumes that the economy takes care of itself. Give it enough time, it'll fix itself. Think about it this way. Remember those uh, kids punching bags that you filled up with air and it has sand on the bottom, and then you, when you punch it, it would come back up? To them, that's the way the economy works. That something like the coronavirus might knock it down, but it's always trying to correct itself and come back up. All right? Now, to you Republican neoclassical economists, they might view the interference with getting back up, you know, that, that Noah, why isn't it back up? Why isn't it coming back up? Why isn't it recovering? They might view this as something like government regulations, which ought to obviously be eliminated, and then that punching bag can right itself again. To your establishment Democrat neoclassicals, it'll be more like, oh, let's say, government regulations. But regulations that they feel are nevertheless necessary and must be kept in place. So, so we end up with the economy being less efficient than it wants to be, than it can be, under pure free market conditions. And for many reasons, I'm just picking this out because it's comparable between the two views. Um, for, for, for example, because of government regulations. All right? so that, that's In short, the idea is, don't worry, be happy. Free market's resilient. All right? Second, by their own admission, their macro theories, theories about, when I say macro, I mean uh, the whole nation, unemployment, inflation, business cycles, their, their own admission, their macro models suck. All right? There was a, a paper by a uh, Nobel laureate named Paul Romer, who is a neoclassical, came out just recently, uh, and he wrote that we have entered an era of post-real macroeconomics where models have what he called a non-committal relationship with the truth. It was a, a fancy way of saying they're just making crap up. Hell, their own graduate students avoid specializing in macroeconomics and don't like the classes. Th this is easily confirmed. There are so many things written on this. Uh, it, it, it's one of those, you know, yeah, gosh, uh, uh, the, the classes aren't very good. There's not a really good connection between theory and policy. But yeah, what are you going to do? Like it's the weather. Well, what you could do is fix them because you're actually also in charge of them. But nevertheless, I'm trying to paint a picture here. But not like that guy. That's what I could do. I could pretend I'm doing, uh, what's that guy's name? Uh, Bob something that used to paint all them pictures on the, on the public TV. Um, he clearly wasn't a good capitalist either. Now, third, all right, so first was economy pretty much takes care of itself. Second was, but by the way, our macro models, the models we would use to guide policy for the United States of America are not terribly good. And third, they believe that government deficit spending must be financed by borrowing money from the only place where they think legitimate economic activity occurs, the private sector. So therefore, we must carefully limit government spending because we've got to take these dollar bills out of the private sector in order to have it. Now, this is a common set of beliefs among the economists who advise both Republicans and Democrats, establishment Democrats, I should say, because there's a, well, there's one that doesn't fall in that category. Now, the degree of fervor 
and the areas of give and take may vary, but it's still basically from the same school of thought. Uh, uh, Bob over there is a creation scientist, but, but Sally is a more reasonable creation scientist. Might be a, a reasonable comparison. Now, uh, and this is why, because the establishment Democratic Party has drawn from this same pool, this is why they have such a proud legacy, like ending welfare as we know it under uh, uh, Bill Clinton, the repeal of Glass-Steagall, the Commodity Futures Modernization Act, look that one up, and every single one of Barack Obama's State of the Union addresses, he talks about, boy, we cannot have this government continuing to spend beyond its means. And boy, they sure tried not to, which is why we had the weakest expansion since World War II following uh, the recovery from the financial crisis. Uh, now, oh, and, and I'm sorry, no, this wasn't just because of Republican Congresses. It wasn't because the Democrats wanted to do one thing and the Republicans another. Obviously, that happens. But that wasn't the reason for ending welfare as we know it. Clinton wanted to do that in the campaign. And yes, the slope to our demise was less steep under Democrats than it was under Republicans. But without a correct vision of the way the economy works, there can be no correct policy. And Bernie Sanders is the only presidential candidate in my lifetime. And possibly, no, no, no. If we go back to World War II, I think we'll find some people that, that were quite reasonable. But, uh, but uh, certainly in my lifetime, whose advisor actually hails from a different school of thought, from the same school of thought that boasts the economist who was voted as the one who most accurately forecast a financial crisis. Now, this is one that is far from post-real, this post-Keynesian view. Uh, this, this, it's far from post-real as Paul Romer described neoclassicism, and in fact, it's a very indispensable part of post-Keynesian research that the assumptions of your model must be drawn from real-world institutions and evidence. That's as opposed to, you know, well, well, doesn't everybody believe that? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Actually, I guess I asked that question. Milton Friedman, he claimed that the most significant theories in economics typically have the least realistic assumptions. No, you did not mishear that. The most significant theories, I, I'm trying to imagine, my first major in college was, was physics, and, and I'm trying to imagine my professor saying that, you know, well, the more unrealistic you make this, the more it turns out it explains how the Earth revolves around the sun. Uh, and and uh, I, it's just not the same way in the natural sciences. It turns out that the real world is a perfect model of itself. And so, yes, we have to simplify. We have no choice because it's too complicated. But we also, we, you know, when, when a model doesn't work well, you know what you ought to think to yourself? Maybe I need to make it more realistic. Maybe I left something out. Not, maybe I'll invoke some fairies, which is basically what Paul Romer ends up accusing modern macroeconomics of doing. Again, he's a member of that same school of thought. He's a Nobel laureate. And he said they're invoking things that have nothing to do with human behavior whatsoever as the cause of economic phenomena. That is not the school of thought from which Bernie Sanders' advisor Stephanie Kelton draws. All right. Now, she also does not believe that the very entity that creates dollars in the first place has to borrow them from the private sector because it doesn't. It doesn't have to do that. And think about that in the context of the current crisis. Many parts of our economy are already coming to a screeching halt. And let's not even think about the horrific situation we have with, with, with health care. Let, let's say that all those who stay home from work, that, that this works perfectly. 
Nobody else gets sick anywhere in the country, but that many people go without a paycheck. Many a hardworking business owner sees a catastrophic decline in sales. Well, the federal government's the only entity that would have the power and responsibility to help these people. But gosh, they'd have to borrow money from the private sector to help these people. How on earth could the government be able to help these poor individuals uh, who are having to have their businesses shut down to protect the, those with compromised immune systems and the elderly? How are we going to be able to afford it? I don't know. Well, of course we can afford it. In terms of dollar bills, there's no issue whatsoever because money grows on keyboards. Now resources, we may run short of resources. What if all the farmers went home and hid inside their houses? We're going to run out of corn. All right, so that's a real problem that keyboards can't solve. But can we afford it? It's not the issue. It is never the issue, right? Now wait, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that is the issue. You know what I ought to do? is I ought to look up FDR's speech from December 8th, 1941. Well, I have it right here. Here's a closing paragraph from that speech, the day after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. Not all of Japan, just a few of them. All right. uh, I asked Congress, I, I do his accent, but I'm not good with accents. I ask that the Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire, assuming, of course, that we can figure out how to pay for it. Oh, wait, no, he didn't say that last part. That's right. Because it doesn't matter. Because when it comes to a war, we figure we got to come up with the money. It's only when we're talking about a social program. It's only when we're talking about our people that we say, well, I don't know. Can we afford that? And this is what the establishment Democrats share with the Republicans and bore the Republicans jumping up and down with joy because they know that so long as the establishment Democrats have in their head, well, but we got to pay for it, then the Republicans have their shoe in the door. What they're going to say is, well, we can't raise taxes. Looks like we're going to have to end food stamps. Looks like we're going to have to end Social Security. Looks like we're going to have to end unemployment insurance. Ah, God, we hate to do it, but we can't afford it. That's ridiculous. Now, unfortunately, Joe Biden leans this same way. And I, I, I started to give you pages of evidence, but good Lord, you know how to use Google. It's very simple. Uh, I like on the issues. That's a web page where they collect candidates' issues on various, I'm sorry, candidates' opinions on various issues as opposed to candidates' issues on various opinions. Uh, and you got a whole page of him talking about balancing the budget and, and, and crap like that. All right. Now, who doesn't think that? Who doesn't believe that that's our, our, our limiting resource, money? Well, Sanders' advisor. All right, so Stephanie Kelton uh, is not one that buys into all this. Now, does Biden want to do the right thing? I assume so. But it's one thing to get a president who wants to do the right thing. It's quite another to find one who's armed to do so. And as I said, in my lifetime, I haven't seen anyone else in this position. And I cannot overemphasize what a big deal this is. The choice of economic paradigm is a deal breaker. Establishment Democrats who worry about whether or not the U.S. government has enough dollar bills to eliminate poverty will not eliminate poverty. Establishment Democrats who worry about whether or not the U.S. government has enough dollar bills to house the homeless will not house the homeless. Establishment Democrats who worry about whether or not the U.S. government has enough dollar bills to reform health care will not reform health care uh, or that.
establishment Democrats who worry about whether or not the U.S. government has enough dollar bills to fight a war. Well, oh no, wait, we don't worry about that, I forgot. Everyone thinks we have enough money for that. There are clearly things we cannot do, but this is dictated by resources. We may have some problems right now. Uh, as I suggested earlier, what if all the farmers went home? Uh, then, then we're actually going to have a reduction in the number of goods and services we get. But it, it's not because of money. There are things that we have to do regardless of our chances of success. World War II. Nobody stopped and said, you know, well, I don't know, do you think we can win? I don't know, let's give it a shot. They said, no, we just got to do it. Climate change should be on this list. It shouldn't be a question of, well, I don't know if we can afford to do it or not. We can't afford not to do it. And we may end up failing, but we can't afford to not try. Now, and nevertheless, uh, none of this has any connection to uh, whether or not the U.S. has enough dollar bills. Well, I know there's been a lot of talk about, uh, gosh, it'd be nice to have a president or vice president that, that, that's a woman, for example, and I, I absolutely agree. In fact, I was a huge supporter of Sarah Palin, as <laughs> a joke. Um, but uh, what I'm saying right now is, what about a Jewish president? You know, I, I, I know a lot of you are anti-Semites, and that's why you don't support him. Uh, but uh, think about that. What about a Jewish president with a woman economist? For me, that's the best scenario we've got. I'm not sure we're going to get there, but if we don't do that, then all these democratic social goals are a pipe dream. We're never going to make it. Thank you very much. And I started to say, may the force be with you. That's how I always end my, my lectures for my class. I need to have a different, uh, and uh, see you, partner. I see you're still with me. So here's a special edition uh, A-D-D-I-T-O-N, uh, to the end of this video, uh, trying to talk a little bit about the way dollar bills work, the way the, way the federal government budgeting works. Uh, and it's always been in the back of my mind because this room is absolutely chock-a-block full of war games. This is an unplayable game, uh, Pacific War. I, I dread turning it over because it has uh, 2,340 pieces, not to mention uh, one, two, three, uh, a lot of maps and charts. Uh, this one here, oh, this was a good one, Gulf Strike, another war game I've got. So anyway, my point being, uh, when I've been explaining government spending, it's often crossed my mind that there are some parallels that gamers would understand. And, and I thought I'd use the example right here of an absolutely wonderful game that came out a few years ago, and quite honestly, I haven't even had time to play it yet, but it's called, uh, I'm going to be careful here because i got all my pieces right here, it's called uh, the U.S. Civil War, all right? And guess, guess what it's about. Now, there's a very common theme in Civil War war games. Let, let me show you the map here real quick. This, uh, this is the Western theater of war. It's going to be everything west of the Appalachians, which was actually the most significant theater of war. Over in the east, they just... I'll give you the east first. Over in the east, they just sat there uh, pushing back and forth for most of the war, not really accomplishing anything. Problem is, it's the very top of the map that's not stuck together at the bottom that is. So, there we go. All right, so here's the... I'll just show you the eastern theater of war. Here's the Eastern Theater of War. Here you can see the Appalachians going down through the middle there. Where you did for just a second. There we go. Uh, see the Appalachians going down through the middle there. You can see the Eastern Seaboard and so forth up there. There's Maryland uh, and, of course, the Confederate and Union capitals just a few hexagons away from each other. Now, here's a real common feature 
of a Civil War war game. You're going to have troops all over the map, but each turn you're generally limited in how many of those troops you can move because during the war there were some severe leadership deficiencies and also in terms of communication. It was just difficult to get, and this was a massive war. Uh, I know that some European strategists at the time kind of made fun of all these amateurs, but the scale of this war was nothing like what it had been in, in, in Europe. And so the, uh, it was difficult to organize this many troops. So generally in these games, each turn, the union is told like, you can move four stacks of units. You can move four units uh, during this month or whatever, right? Well, but I've got 20 stacks of units. Well, that's too bad. You've only got enough command resources. You've only got enough communication ability. You've only got enough organizational ability to move four. Now, uh, as you might not be surprised, as the war goes on, the Union generally gets better about being able to organize and move forces. So that, uh, But at any given moment, you have lots of unemployed forces. Lots of forces that are just sitting there on the map, all right, not doing anything. Lots like unemployed resources in the country. Like uh, uh, during the Civil War, I'm sorry, during, during the Great Depression, there were lots of unemployed resources. And the problem was that the private sector was like the union ability to organize and command troops. It was limited, much below what the total available troops were. Well, the effect of the New Deal was to basically say, oh, no, you can move six or seven more of those stacks of troops as well, all right? That, that, that uh, we're not borrowing money. We're not borrowing command, uh, uh, I guess, what, what we call them in these games, um, operations points is what they call them sometimes. Uh, we're not borrowing the operations points from the, union, from the union forces. We're just making up some new ones. Oh, where did you find those? I just made them up. I just said, you got six more, all right? That's the way we do money. I know it's frightening. I believe it was Robert Heilbroner, the famous economist, who said if people knew how the financial sector really worked, they'd be terrified. Uh, and indeed. So I think to myself often in these games that the effect of government spending in a period of high unemployment is simply to allow, for example, the union forces to move more of the troops out there than they could with their own private abilities, with what they already had. That we're simply activating resources. That government spending is activating resources. That's what it does. Can it cause inflation? Yeah, but that, I got another video on that. I'm not going to talk about it. Let's see. Anything else I'm going to show you here? Well, I, here, I'll show you my... Right there's my panther. Beautiful. And uh, otherwise, I've got a lot of neat stuff in here. I'm going to save that for my next video. Well, uh, what was my new signing off? Uh, see you, partner. I believe that was it. Thank you for listening.